0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Now, once the scale of Cyclone Gabriel's destruction became clear, politicians of all parties declared that restoring and even improving our infrastructure is now the top priority, and experts and economists agreed and warned us the expense will be epic. This is set to become a central issue for our economy, our society and our politics and even a big factor in the election this year maybe. But is there a common understanding in our media of what infrastructure actually is, let alone how to cover the issue of how we should fix it? You, you can't just bore people with information. You really do have to present the human element and, and I think that's a, that's a basic lesson for um, all journalists really. Also this week, one MP rapidly reversed her scepticism about climate science under pressure from her party in the wake of Cyclone Gabriel. And that U-turn prompted a lot of mirth in our media, but it's not hard to find similar scepticism from their own staff and on-air stars. But first, we looked at how alarming reports about cyclone-hit communities in fear of looters and thieves hit the headlines this past week, prompting calls to put more cops and even soldiers on the streets.
0: He came and broke the door off and said, hang on to the sofa, and we floated with the dog on the sofa across to his fence line. If it wasn't his, we'd be gone.
1: That was Rua Cooper, a nurse who told News Hub Sam Hayes last weekend that a neighbour had saved her by breaking into her own home in Hawke's Bay during Cyclone Gabriel. It was compelling stuff, but people have told Sam Hayes that others breaking into their homes since then in the region weren't doing it to save them.
2: Meanwhile, the police minister has taken a swipe at gangs such as the mongrel mob as lawlessness, looting and gun violence escalated further in Hawke's Bay. And it didn't take us long to find people who are angry and scared.
1: After that, the police and the Prime Minister denied that lawlessness, looting and gun violence was really escalating. But plenty of people in and around Eskdale were certainly telling Sam Hayes that.
3: The gangs are coming in, or just looters in general, are coming in, trying, threatening people, stealing their stuff.
0: Low lives are just coming out, trying to steal the food that's been dropped off. Um, filming the streets so that they can come back later and grab generators and... Quabites and whatever has survived, and that that breaks my heart.
1: And that would break anyone's heart, and so would helping hands having to be diverted from cleaning up to security.
0: So locals here have set up
3: their own roadblocks. It's just despicable, isn't it, you know, taking advantage of people in their, at, at their, um, their highest time of need and at their lowest.
2: At the next checkpoint down the road, I spoke to a traffic management worker. He can't appear on camera but he told me that he's had a gun pulled on him by people who refused to stop.
1: And when Esk Valley residents were evacuated again this weekend, News Hub at Six showed that road workers staffing the cordons were accompanied by police officers. And it's not just News Hub that's been reporting these concerns lately. One woman told RNZ on Friday that a group of people tried to get into her place nearby, and it wasn't the only one.
0: Quite often there's a lot of people and a lot of cars around out there, that we know for sure aren't locals and they aren't the volunteers that are doing a great job. They're people that are out there trying to take advantage of people like us that are already sort of devastated and are just trying to make it worse.
1: Napier's mayor told Talk ZB this week that the crime concern was real in other places too.
0: It is really widespread. We've got a lot of concerned community members.
1: And earlier this week, newsroom journalist Bonnie Sumner vividly described how fear and anger about looting was stressing out locals in several Hawke's Bay towns. They'll take anything, and the gangs are more organised than the police, one woman told her. Now, last weekend, those claims that gangs were involved prompted the police minister to tell them to pull their heads in and pull their patches off and pull out shovels and wheelbarrows instead and help clean up, which would seem to indicate that Stuart Nash did think the gangs might be in on the crime. Though, as Sam Hayes reported on News Hub at 6 last weekend
2: police minister had no idea how bad it was until NewsHub told him this afternoon.
1: But last Tuesday morning, the Prime Minister told Today FM that law and order was still all in order in Hawke's Bay and crime was not as bad there as the rumour mill or media reports would have you believe.
3: Police aren't seeing any evidence to suggest that there's a degree of
1: lawlessness as some of the rumour mill might be suggesting. The police commissioner had already told the media that family violence was up in the affected regions, but in fact fewer dishonesty offences than usual had been recorded in the region after Gabrielle. But the impression that things were out of control prompted opposition politicians to pile in and that gave more grist to the media's mill. National leader Christopher Luxon called out low-life scumbag behaviour after calling for the doubling of the sentences of those caught stealing during a state of emergency. And the arrest stats supplied by the police cut no ice at all, with ACT MP Nicole McKee speaking on the platform.
0: When someone comes yeah. at you with a, with a weapon, no matter what it is, and you're trying to take your generator and they are trying to take your food, what they want is not statistics. They want the boys in blue and the boys in green to be down
1: their streets. And the same day, Winston Peters also called for the army to be brought in to deter gangs and feral thugs threatening, robbing, stealing and looting, in his words. So here we had, through the media, two completely contrasting accounts of life at Ground Zero. Local people insisting that looting was rife and threats of violence, and that soldiers on the streets might now be needed, and opposition politicians and some local ones were backing that up. But the police top brass in the government and some other local leaders insisted there was really nothing you wouldn't expect to see during something like a power cut. For once, the powers that be seemed to be on the same page as mongrel mob spokespeople, claiming it was the truth that was being beaten up by politicians and the media. Now, part of the problem here was that so much of what was being said in the media was based on a lot of anecdotes but few full facts. Though people in Poketapu and other communities certainly weren't manning 24/7 roadblocks, which we've seen in our news, for no reason, and in those circumstances, the media must try to sift the facts from the fiction and the emotions to provide a bit of clarity. On Monday, on News Talk ZB, Heather Duplessy-Ellen catalogued some of the known crimes so far. Like this.
4: It was reported on NewsHub last night that as soon as generators arrive, people then blockade them with cars to stop them being nicked. A roading crew has reportedly had a pistol and a sawn off shotgun pulled on them. Vodafone's CEO says that their generators are being stolen from their cell site. And already, so far, 59 people have been arrested for looting and dishonesty.
1: And that last stat was repeated earlier on ZB by Kerry Woodham like this. And it's not just one or two. 59 people have already been arrested. But those 59 arrests, according to the police, were for a range of offences, including family violence. And as both ZB presenters themselves acknowledged, the figure was maybe meaningless anyway, because it was pretty hard, or sometimes even impossible, for people to report anything to anyone when the communications were stuffed, or at best sketchy, after Gabrielle struck. On Thursday, News Talk ZB and Morning Report on RNZ National. Both confirmed that a traffic management crew had been threatened with a gun earlier in the week. The police commissioner questioned whether this had happened at all, but Liam Harvey, a Napier
4: traffic management supervisor, says his crew were at 5 Roundabout when weapons, including a shotgun, were pointed at them uh, from a car window.
1: They were
0: just trying to set up a site, just trying to do their job, and
1: out of nowhere they had weapons pointed at them and Liam Harvey told RNZ that he did report that to the police at the time. However, so far, no other cases of firearms being presented have been confirmed by the police yet, or by the media. And while plenty of people have been saying that gangs are involved in looting and crime, and that would be no surprise really, given that the Eastern and Bay of Plenty districts have more gang members than any others, there's been little hard evidence of that so far. Now, in part, that's because the police haven't said a whole lot about it, which was frustrating for ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen last Tuesday. We'll keep you posted on whether he's actually man enough to man up and talk about it. And when Police Commissioner Andrew Costa did go man-to-man on ZB with Mike Hosking, he wanted to know how many of those arrested were in gangs. You don't want
2: to tell me that and I still have to go and OIA
1: that and you don't think that's
2: a massive waste of my time? Oh, look, I just don't have that at my fingertips, Mike. Um, can you get it to me everyone before the end of the day? Flat out is, I'm sure we can take a look, but I can't guarantee you I'll get you that granularity by the end of the day, Mike, but we, we'll do our best to give you what we can.
1: And earlier that day, a guy called Brent, who said he'd been manning overnight roadblocks in Eskdale, called News Talk ZB with some interesting information.
4: We had, uh, at a 34 the other night,
0: we uh, took the plates and numbers of every, every single one of them, 23 of them were known to the police as gang of philly.
1: Brent's claims appeared in Newstalk ZB's news bulletins a couple of hours later, but vanished after that, and it's a pity that no one mined him for more information and corroboration to add to coverage that was crying out for hard facts. And as the audio of Brent's ZB talkback call is now circulating in online forums, accompanied by unverifiable claims of undeclared deaths, secret morgues, and even that the government had prevented the army from entering Hawke's Bay, it would have been good to get him properly on the record. On Thursday, the Mayor of Gisborne and Tairawhiti's police chief both called for a bit of calm and truth over similar claims that crime was spiking on their patch and they added that the social media teams of the police were actively working to have disinformation removed. Because all this does have a bit of an impact on people hearing it, it seems. After Brent's call, News Talk ZB's Kerry Woodham got this dark message.
0: Uh, Kerry, I'm in rural Hawke's Bay. I have not seen or heard from one civil defence person our road is back in and the scum are cruising round like sharks. My thoughts are that this government wants people out of the rural areas and into town so the whole freaking rural country can go into pine trees. I can tell you as one pissed off rural person that is not going to happen. There is so much politicisation of this tragedy and we won't be forgetting it. As another caller said, during COVID they were all over the country like a rash. Vigilante groups are rallying.
1: And whether that's just someone who's venting a bit or a real prospect, well, listeners were left to guess. The political rhetoric in the media also triggered some people. When National's proposed doubling of looters' sentences was raised on News Newstalk ZB, there were talkback responses like this one.
3: I think it's a nice idea, but it, it, it won't make a blind bit of difference. And the reason for that is because judges hand down sentences, and as
5: I think I heard you say... Not too long ago, James, essentially judges got to offend many, many, many
3: times before you get sentenced to a period of imprisonment.
1: The solution, that former police officer said, was to take sentencing out of the hands of our judges, which would be a pretty radical step for our justice system. Now, thanks to the media, it is now clear to everyone that theft and the threat of it is very real for the people who are more vulnerable right now in cyclone-hit regions, and that they weren't reassured at all by the police and the Prime Minister, who were deliberately playing it down earlier this past week. On Heather Duplessis allens drive show, the host summed it up this way. People are not going to remember the details. They will remember is that
4: the new Prime Minister told us crime wasn't that bad, which proved not to be true, which is going to feel for an awful lot of us like trying to mislead us, whether he meant to or not.
1: And she might be right that people won't remember the details, which were not always clear, as we've just heard. But if they do feel misled about the post-cyclone crime wave, they might feel that the way it was covered in parts of the media was part of the problem too. There's no question that as a country we need to look at the resilience of our infrastructure. And we need to do that with a a much greater sense of urgency, I think, than we have ever seen before. Um, This weather event has really highlighted that for me. Um, It is going to be expensive. It's going to require some really big... Calls. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins last Monday, one week after cyclone Gabrielle struck, telling reporters it's now going to be a hell of a job to fix up our infrastructure. And that's a word that's been in almost every news bulletin this past week. He just announced $300 million of emergency spending for it, $250 million of that for patching up the roads. But that's just a drop in the bucket in the overall scheme of things. The day before that, TVNZ's Q&A show described the issue this way.
4: Climate change is here. Our cities are not ready. Our transport networks, telecommunications, our water infrastructure, all of it has been left
1: wanting and people are being killed. The costs of rebuilding everything damaged so far have been loosely estimated at $8 billion and maybe much more. Now at that same media conference, Chris Hipkins also went on to say that we have to do it no matter what
3: it costs. We, we will simply have to find a way of doing it. There's just no question that we can't continue the way that we have been going. We are going to see more of these types of weather events, um, and so we have to be prepared. And it might not be here, it might be in other parts of the country, so we're going to have to look at,
1: at very closely at how we make sure we've got as resilient an infrastructure as possible. And the media will have to look into that too, now that it looks set to become a major social, economic and political issue, and to get the political press pack going, an election issue as well. Now when Cyclone Gabriel struck, the media's main job was of course to document what was happening and pass on critical information. But even then, some outlets were already starting to ponder the bigger picture. A day later, when Gabriel's power had become obvious, Catherine Ryan said this in her weekly political panel discussion. These storms
4: now are also reminding everybody that governments actually have big issues and big problems to deal with. And we are back talking about infrastructure, for God's sake. And we're back Mm. talking about managed retreat and all those things you don't want to talk about on a lovely, you know, summer's day
1: well, we're all talking about infrastructure now. And it will be fascinating to see if political reporting that did seem locked into covering the upcoming election as a political popularity contest between two guys called Chris can now make a managed retreat from that to zero in on infrastructure, which we now know we need a plan for much more urgently than we need more analysis of political strategy. Now, coincidentally, the day that Cyclone Gabrielle struck the Environmental Defence Society published a report that was all about managed retreat from land as a consequence of climate change. Presciently, it said that a 1-in-100-year flood could affect close to 675,000 people and 400,000 buildings, including 20 airports. But few of us are keen on really confronting climate change, according to journalist Bernard Hickey. In his Daily Bulletin on Wednesday last week, he said you'd think that our most expensive weather catastrophe in history might do the trick, or even two of them inside three weeks – But Bernard Hickey cited a poll taken after the storms in Auckland late last month, which found that less than half of those surveyed thought the government, or citizens themselves, should do more to combat climate change. And Bernard Hickey cited another recent survey that found that many of us reckon we are already doing more, though few of us really are. We're actually one of the least active countries in the world. Secondly, we also think that we're doing the most. That's clearly not the case. Last Sunday, on that episode of TVNZ's Q&A, the Finance Minister also said this.
3: Two words New Zealanders are going to get used to hearing over the next few years is managed retreat.
1: And Grant Robertson followed up those words on Q&A with these ones, including the other one that we're
3: hearing a lot of too. We have to understand where communities can be made more resilient, where we can do things to the infrastructure so they can stay where they are, and other communities and neighbourhoods where actually we have to accept it's no longer appropriate. But
1: writing for the spin-off, founder Duncan Greve said we hadn't heard enough from this finance minister, or indeed his predecessors in that job, about infrastructure spending, and he wasn't reassured by claims that we're in good shape to borrow enough to fix it.
6: Our debt is low because we've refused to spend money building the things we need. That infrastructure deficit is very real. The combined past and future gap is $210 billion, according to the Treasury. But it's not recognised on those balance sheets we brag about. Therefore, it magically disappears. And Duncan
1: Grieve tried to personalise this enormous problem in this way.
6: It's like driving around in a car with bald tyres, two indicators out and a boot that doesn't shut anymore after a prang. Yes, the owner has more cash in the bank, but only at the cost of risking their life and the lives of others as a result. Multiply this by about five million and you understand roughly where we are as a country. It still works, but it's a
1: mess. And as if to point to the same problem on sea, two more Cook Strait ferries cocked out this week, leaving just two sailing and plenty of passengers stranded. Now ferries, like our roads, definitely infrastructure. But last week on MediaWatch, RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, told me this.
5: It's really important to have reporters in the regions, to have strong infrastructure in the regions, and, and I would argue that Radio New Zealand, RNZ, is a, is a key piece of infrastructure.
1: Well, RNZ is a lifeline utility under the civil defence and emergency management legislation, but is it actually infrastructure? Well, the old analogue-era radio transmission towers turned out to be when all else failed in parts of the north this past week. And as Fenner Owen reported on TVNZ's Q&A last week, the digital mobile technology really failed.
0: They rely on electricity to work. So if the power's cut, they have an inbuilt uh, contingency battery life of four to eight hours. And then after that,
7: you're on your own.
1: And last week, Zedbury's Canterbury host John Macdonald told his listeners we're living with the legacy of late 1990s electricity market reform failures. And he now regretted recently getting rid of his landline to save money, even though it had been a lifeline back in the 2011 quake. More and more people on cell phones
2: not using landlines anymore. Roads that fall apart even when it's not raining and when there are no cyclones. And a complicated electricity system which is largely reliant on technologies from the 50s and 60s then no wonder we can't cope when the worst storm to hit New Zealand this century happens, which all tells me that our infrastructure is so not up to the job of keeping us connected and moving in the good times and the not-so-good times.
1: So what will it take to get back to the good times for our infrastructure? In his weekly Herald column, former ACT Party founder and leader Richard Preble also looked offshore for infrastructure inspiration.
6: Ukrainians are rebuilding in the middle of winter, in the middle of a war, at an astonishing rate. It can be done.
1: Well, it can, but Ukraine has had 22 billion US dollars in aid from the US for this purpose. To patch up and catch up the infrastructure, real upgrades can't be made until the war ends. But without international aid secured by being invaded by Russia, what sort of sums would we need for what we need to do now after Cyclone Gabriel? And what indeed is already in the pipeline? Well, quite a bit actually, according to this, from the head of New Zealand's Infrastructure Commission, who told News Talk ZB's Kerry Woodham this this past week.
5: Um, you know, we we tracked that at the commission, and, and currently we're looking at about $78 billion in that infrastructure pipeline over the five years ahead. So that,
7: that's the record for New Zealand.
1: Well, $78 billion sounds like heaps for building infrastructure. But is it? Well, you have to be an expert to know, and few in our media are. And it seems that in the short time that infrastructure has become such a hot topic in our media, we don't really have a common understanding of what it is, let alone what it is we need to do, even though, as the media are now telling us, this is all crucial for our future. Michael Currine edits the magazine Infrastructure Asia-Pacific and the website infrastructurenews.co.nz.
5: Infrastructure is a very broad topic. It's essentially the building blocks or or the cogs in in a machine that makes something work. Uh, It's important that people don't just use the word without being quite clear what they're specifically talking about. Uh, You know, is it our energy infrastructure? Is it our our roading infrastructure? Our our stormwater infrastructure? That
1: probably needs to be quite clear. Otherwise, you're just throwing around a a word. Hey, Michael, I'm old enough to be able to uh, remember as a kid the Think Big projects being debated, you know, Robert Muldoon was the Prime Minister and people were endlessly debating in the media, the Clyde Dam, the Montanui synthetic petrol plant, things like that. That was part of the the backdrop to news when I was really young. We, for example, had the Marsden Point refinery closed. And apart from a bit of angst about, you know, security of petrol supplies, and that was about it. Are these things dangerously under debated?
5: The media debate things that they think people will respond to, but they're probably not having the more important conversations, which is about what really needs investment in our infrastructure, which has been underinvested by previous governments for, well, probably decades, I would say. You talked about Muldoon's Think Big projects, but really those are just vanity projects or or things that, um, that are popular when really you need to invest in the sort of more basic things that (laughs) will actually help the country function a lot better. And um, if one good thing has come out of this, it's that we're finally having this uh, conversation. We have underinvested in infrastructure and that is quite evident now. We're seeing water infrastructure completely falling apart. Obviously, uh, stormwater infrastructure and flood infrastructure was not up to scratch in um, a lot of areas of the North Island as well. If we were having these conversations earlier, perhaps we could have done something about it sooner.
1: I've seen some estimates of huge sums that uh, many billions of dollars, a lot of that catch up, the result of that underinvestment in previous years. But for the media to be telling people this, I mean, is this really helpful for people that want to understand it? Because I mean, does anyone really have any idea what this will cost and what the country can actually feasibly afford to do to to fix it up?
5: Treasury has has, uh, forecasted this our country needs $210 billion invested in its infrastructure to get it up to scratch. And I'm not talking about, you know, cycle bridges across the Waitemata Harbour in Auckland or or even a high-speed rail between our cities. So this is just our basic bread and butter stuff, just making sure that towns have clean drinking water so they don't have to do boil water notices or... Um, making sure our, our stormwater and, and flood infrastructure is upgraded so that we, we're we ready for stuff like we've seen this year, stuff that we need so our country can be well, up to standard. You, you wouldn't want to overwhelm people with numbers, but it's certainly something that they, they should have been doing already is paying attention to how much we needed invested in our infrastructure and weighing that up with how much uh, successive governments have invested or under-invested.
1: So Phil Pennington of RNZ uh, has been out covering the cyclone uh, recovery effort, and uh, he's an expert in some of this area already because he's been reporting on transport problems and shortfalls in construction industry and so on. So he did a piece uh, highlighting just how big, just alone, the transport infrastructure problems are going to be. If, if infrastructure is now going to be the big-ticket issue, a big political issue and social issue, do the media need dedicated reporters an actual infrastructure correspondents and things like that on the staff
5: well, they can appoint a specialist infrastructure reporter if they, they feel that there's a gap there but the truth is all the information is out there the the reports are there the numbers are there and to be honest any decent journalist should be able to find them but without a doubt it needs better coverage than what we've had in the past because successive governments have underinvested in infrastructure and have gotten away with it just because we haven't been having those conversations
1: when it's dealt with nowadays, it just seems to be tucked away in, in the business pages or considered to be an economical business issue. It's part of the problem for mainstream media that even though it's more important than ever now, they still kind of find it a bit boring. And it's, it's hard for media to uh, that, that, that live or die by their audience attention to serve up what they will really need.
5: Well, it is up to media to to engage their uh, audience and and to make sure that they can relate to these stories. And um, I think that that is why we're having this conversation now is is because finally um, something has happened that people can relate to. It's about tying those uh, issues to um, how it affects people's lives. You can't just say our wastewater infrastructure is is underinvested and um, people. Aren't going to respond to that, but if you say, "Well, this is why you have to check for E. coli before you go swimming at the beach," because perhaps people might start paying more
1: attention. Yes, a little bit like, say, coverage of uh, genetically engineering food. Uh, when you report it in the, the details and the science, it, it goes over people's heads. But uh, when media started running headlines like, "You know, the Franken foods on your supermarket shelves," that's uh, that sort of gets people's attention exactly exactly you you can't just bore people with
5: information you really do have to present the human element and, and I think that's it's a, a basic lesson for um, all journalists really
1: if infrastructure and uh, the, the spending on it is going to go up there will also be more lobbying more people wanting to uh you know promote spending in their particular sector and say it might be more important than others will there now be a whole lot more stuff to balance out Mm. Well, we actually, we saw this quite a bit um, following COVID um, with the uh, government
5: announcing its uh, shovel-ready projects. Um, We did some extensive coverage of that um, with millions and millions of dollars being poured into different projects across the country and different councils and organisations vying for a piece of that pie. Um, So we may end up seeing that, again, it really depends on how the, the government decides to approach this so we've got our, uh, our yearbook coming up and which we actually look at overseas hurricanes or, or um, similar events to what we've faced and what they've actually done to um, improve their infrastructure so that they're ready for a, another disaster. So we've already started preparing um, our coverage and we're ready for that
1: conversation to, to hopefully continue. Is part of the challenge, Michael, both for a specialist publication like yours, but also for general mainstream media for a, a general audience, that uh, a lot of these projects that are important have a lot of politics attached to them. For example, Three Waters—that's a big infrastructure, a multi-multi billion-dollar uh, project, incredibly controversial—being rescoped in part because of the reaction to it. Yes, politics can can help or it can hinder, but
5: the the fact remains we have basic infrastructure costs that need to be funded. doesn't matter which government you've got in, those infrastructure costs need to be met. I think we need to remove the politics, at least from those discussions, whether or not you have a cycle bridge over the Waitamata Harbour, that's possibly a bit more political, but a bit less important than whether we have clean drinking water across the country, which is um, the, the the reason Three Waters is even um, being talked about in the first place? Something needs to happen. It's it's a shame that the that it's become such a political issue, instead of a
1: um, well,
5: just a, an issue that needs to be addressed.
1: It was you know that outbreak in Havelock North, which was deadly. Which prompted the whole rethink of the policy that led to the Three Waters, and then all the controversy, and that's in a part of the region uh, that's um, you know now suffering so horribly from Cyclone Gabriel.
5: Well, that's right, and 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 Three Waters also covers stormwater as well, so that we don't see the likes of the flooding that we have witnessed uh, just over the past month.
1: Michael Karine, who edits the magazine Infrastructure Asia-Pacific and the news website infrastructurenews.co.nz. As we heard earlier, some in the media were pondering the long-term and big-picture issues forced by the destruction of Cyclone Gabriel pretty soon after it struck – For example, two days after landfall, TBNZ's breakfast show was quizzing natural hazards expert Professor Bruce Glaviewicz about that thorny issue of managed retreat. But there's tremendous resistance, and there are strong interests that
5: will uh, seek to prevent this. There is still climate denialism, climate change denialism, in some of our leadership, which is quite frankly staggering, but it's a harsh reality we need to confront.
1: Well, this week, the National Party had to confront some of that within its own ranks. MP Maureen Pugh ended up rapidly reversing her scepticism about climate science, and that gave much mirth to our media, but as Hayden Donnell now reports, one major media outlet routinely airs similar scepticism from its own staff and even on-air stars.
0: I am waiting on the evidence from the minister that provides that evidence. Christopher Luxon says there's no room for climate change denies in his caucus. Yes, of course not. I'm not denying climate change. I've seen the evidence of it. We have, we have cooled and warmed, cooled and warmed over millions but of years. But you don't think the current climate change is down to humans? I, I have yet to see Uh, what the evidence is that they are providing about
3: that. That's Maureen Pugh asking Climate Minister James Shaw to help her track down some evidence for the most extensively studied environmental phenomenon of the last 50 years. The West Coast Tasman MP was quickly rebuffed by her own party over her request for research assistance. National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis kindly offered to save Shaw some trouble and lend Pugh her own reading material. I've got a lot she
0: can
5: read. She's going to be doing a lot of reading.
3: Three hours later, Pew had apparently skimmed enough of the evidence to convince herself that anthropogenic climate change is real after all.
0: I regret that my comments this morning were a bit unclear and will have led some to think that I am questioning the causes of climate change and that is clearly not my position. I accept the scientific consensus that human-induced climate change is real and there is a need to curb greenhouse gas emissions.
3: As a National Party communications staffer stood centimetres behind her, Pew insisted she was speaking of her own volition.
0: Is this what you, be- is this, is this what you believe or is this what you've been told to say? This, these are my words. Have you been told to say this? I have not been instructed to say this at all.
3: If Pew got the idea there's no evidence for man-made climate change, perhaps it's just because she's been listening to the output of one of our major media companies. Her initial apparently regrettable statement to reporters echoed almost word for word what Layton Smith had to say in the most recent episode of his popular NZME podcast.
7: A number of years ago, quite a few now, I donated $1,000, well I promised $1,000, to a fund that Terry Dunleavy was organising as. Reward, a prize, if you like, for anybody who could prove that man is responsible for climate change. Nobody would take it on. People were challenged, they wouldn't take it on. And there's a reason they won't take it on because they can't. And the same principle applies to James Shaw, who won't waste his time explaining anthropogenic global uh, warming or climate change to people who ask him because he can't. And he can't because there is none. No scientific established evidence. It's that simple. Don't take my word for it. Ask him to do it. Ask others to do it. Ask any politician to do it. They won't. They can't.
3: Leighton Smith would be out of pocket if he could accept the findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the World Meteorological Organization, the World Health Organization, or the United Nations or the American Geophysical Union, the European Federation of Geologists, the Royal Meteorological Society, or the American Medical Association, but presumably those agencies don't cut the mustard when it comes to the standard of inquiry demanded by a former talkback host with no scientific qualifications. This isn't an isolated incident. Smith has used his platform to cast doubt on man-made climate change for decades. That wouldn't be such a concern if he were a lone voice shouting into the void, but his podcast goes out to thousands of people, and it's introduced like this. Debate.
7: Now, the Layton Smith Podcast, powered by Newstalk ZB.
3: Smith isn't the only one at News Talk ZB that's dabbled in forms of climate denial or, at the least, climate change minimisation. The station's most popular host, Mike Hosking, had this to say on TVNZ Seven Sharp back in 2014:
2: "Bad news. I'm afraid the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, has issued its latest report. It's 2,600 pages long and spans 32 volumes. But I can I can sum it up for you." Uh, We're stuffed. The seas are rising, uh, the storms are coming, the locusts are close, we are going to climatic hell in a handcart. That's, of course, if you believe them, which, as it turns out, I don't. 20 years ago, they said we had 20 years to turn things around. We haven't. The Kyoto Protocol was a last-ditch attempt to save us all. No-one adhered to it. The lesson they have not learnt is that freaking people out doesn't get buy-in. I mean, if the Met Service struggles with the accuracy of a five-day forecast, I'm thinking a long-range prediction that takes in 86-years might be a bit dodgy. So my advice, don't let it ruin your
3: night. In recent years, Hosking has taken to accepting that climate change is happening while arguing we shouldn't have to do too much about it. Here he is in 2019. This seems
2: in so many respects an ironic age, don't you think? We're running the very real risk, I think, of curtailing our lives and our outlooks on what might turn out to be a fad or a whim. Climate change, I talk of Climate change and its obsession is taking over rational thought these days. Now, this is not to say that climate change isn't real, but it is to say we don't know what to do about it, we might think we do,
3: but we don't really. Perhaps Willis can let him borrow her books after Pew is done with them because there's a lot of research, including from the IPCC, on the most effective ways to combat climate change. Hosking's colleague Heather Duplessis allen has occupied a similar position, arguing climate change isn't important enough to be at the top of the government's policy agenda in this editorial from 2020. News Talk
4: ZB. You know, I know I'm not actually supposed to say it, but bugger it, I'm just going to say it anyway.
3: Climate change is not the biggest problem that this country has at the moment.
4: It is not our biggest priority. We are responsible in New Zealand for about 0.17% at last count of global emissions. And yet today, here we have this farce of the government declaring a climate change emergency.
3: In 2022, she followed that with another similarly themed missive headline, Does Climate Change Really Matter When Push Comes to Shove? As it turns out, it does. Here she is again following cyclone Gabrielle.
4: You know, In the last couple of days I've read versions of the same headline over and over again. Will this be the climate crisis event that finally spurs action? Do you know what? I think it might be. I think for a lot of people this might be the summer that finally drives home the fact that climate change is coming at you.
3: Maybe that action would have been spurred earlier if more of our leading commentators had used their platform to explain why climate change is an issue that matters to New Zealanders. At least these commentators are coming round to the idea that climate change is kind of a big deal. Over at The Herald, opinion writer John Rowan has clung to a different line for the better part of 20 years. In 2007, he described himself as a climate sceptic and said that, with luck, climate change would soon go the way of the recently approaching ice age. In 2009, he said this. The public senses, I think, that either the problem is wildly overstated or the solution's ridiculously inadequate. Either way, it is hard to take climate change seriously. In 2014, he scoffed at the idea of the sea rising by half a metre and compared climate mitigation to what he saw as unnecessary earthquake-strengthening measures. Major earthquakes are terrifying, but the threat to life in old buildings is probably no greater than the dire consequences predicted from climate change. Both could be given that reliable Kiwi risk assessment. She'll be right. In 2017, one year after the Herald signed up to Covering Climate Now, which calls for responsible climate reporting, Rowan wrote a column shrugging off a dismal summer that many linked to the effects of climate change under the headline Year of Extreme Weather Not So Bad. Credit to Rowan, he's consistent. Even with huge swathes of Auckland flooded and Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay devastated by a climate change fueled cyclone, he's stuck to his guns. He began his column on February 18, noting that people in the background of the cyclone coverage on TV news were generally smiling before positing that those grins were evidence of our nation's sunny outlook on a warming future beset by regular meteorological disasters. Climate change is here, and we know now we're going to be all right. There are several people across the country who might call that assessment into question, including Tolaga Bay farmer Bridget Parker. Here she is speaking to RNZ about the damage Gabrielle did to her community.
0: We knew Gabrielle could be bad. We, we prepared for the worst. But nothing prepares you for this carnage.
3: Or as Hawke's Bay resident Andrew Biggs put it on Twitter. We are smiling because if we don't, our kids will cry. The sobering reality facing Parker, Biggs and many others has reinforced a broad consensus on New Zealand's need to mitigate and adapt to climate change. As Maureen Pugh showed earlier this week, not believing the science on man-made climate change or the need to curb greenhouse gas emissions is now too extreme a position for either of our major political parties. For some reason, the same can't be said of all of our major media organisations. Hayden Dunnell there on a tough week for National MP Maureen Pugh and perhaps for others still
1: struggling to accept climate science should be taken seriously now in spite of what's come down from the sky this past month. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend but we'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday on Nights and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.